We'll get into it all in just a moment, but first, this episode of the show is sponsored by Lawson's Finest Liquids, and joining me on the line is Sean Lawson. He's the namesake of the brewery, and we're talking about the brewery's social impact program. Sean, for those unfamiliar, what can you tell us about this initiative? Thanks, John. Our social impact program, also known as our SIP, uh, is an important part of what we do at Lawson's Finest to support our local communities uh, and help people take good care of each other, uh, protect and enjoy the natural world, and bring more fun to life. Uh, we give back uh, through philanthropy uh, to local nonprofits throughout Vermont uh, in different areas of giving, and we're primarily focused on healthy communities, food and economic security, as well as protecting uh, the natural world around us. And since opening in October of 2018 through what was called our no-tip program and is now known as our Sunshine Fund, uh, we've raised uh, through guest donations over $575,000 uh, in donations to 54 Vermont nonprofits. So it's something that Karen and I are really proud of uh, here at Lawson's Finest and is our way of uh, giving back and sharing our success. Sean will be okay. back with us at the bottom of the show to talk a little bit more about SIP, the Social Impact Program. And you should also check out LawsonsFinest.com and their social media channels to learn more. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. Zach Adams of Fox Farm Brewery is here this week to talk about Rauch beer, but we're also going to talk about other things, including a sneak peek at his upcoming spontaneous release. But first, a reminder to check out BeerEdge.com to subscribe to the newsletter, to catch up on episodes of this podcast, as well as the Beer Edge podcast, and to check out our very cool merch page. This episode is also sponsored by Brees. Brees is the leading supplier of specialty malt to craft brewers. They offer the broadest product line in the industry, including a wide range of roasted malts that add flavor, color, and character to beer. Their experienced operators handcraft every batch of roasted malt to ensure the product you get is consistent. Check out brewingwithbreeze.com for beer recipes using roasted malt. We're also brought to you by NC Hops, the cooperative of master hop growers, which is a passionate collective of farms dedicated to innovation and sustainability. Leading the charge in sustainable farm practices, some NZ hop farms have over five generations of knowledge that inform their composting program, used by growers to promote healthy, regenerative growth of hops year after year. This creates high-quality soil, a critical component of healthy growing conditions. At NZ hops, they feel that sustainability is not only being a steward for the land, but also for our future. We're in it together. Join the conversation at nzhops.co.nz or join them on LinkedIn, Instagram, or on Twitter. The second major holiday weekend of the summer is now behind us. And before we all slid into a long few days off, my Instagram and the Facebook page started getting a lot of pings. It turns out that Fox Farm in Connecticut announced that it was launching a Kreditsky, one in collaboration and under the guidance of Live Oak. And this one was going to have locally smoked malt. Well, the good friends at the This Week in Raukbeer page went nuts, and we're rightfully excited. So while you all were grilling hot dogs and swimming in pools, I was at my computer for like a whole 45 seconds, emailing Zach Adams, the founder and brewer of Fox Farm, asking him to come on the show and to give us the smoky lowdown. 
He, it seems, was also on email and agreed quickly. So now with the holiday weekend behind us, we got on Zoom and chatted about what's happening with his brewery now and what it was like during COVID and what other things are in the pipeline. So grab your flute of Polish champagne and come along with us on this conversation that started off with me asking him how things were at the brewery over Independence Day weekend. We had a pretty lousy uh, 4th of July weather-wise around here. It was like a high of 60 on Saturday, I think. Um, Rain in and out all week, but um, the, the feeling and vibe was was generally pretty good. Did, uh, did people over- stay away because of the weather or was it just you know, overcast be damned? Uh, if you've over, ever seen our uh, our space, yeah. um, uh, just a little background for folks, we're, we're on an old dairy farm. You know, our, our brewery is housed inside of uh, this kind of like 5,000 square foot old 1960s dairy barn. Um, so yeah, just given the kind of bucolic setting, a, a lot of people are drawn to us to um, you know enjoy a day outdoors. And, and so this weekend, they didn't necessarily get that, but we we did what we could with our indoor space. There's really nothing quite like a farm in the rain between the puddles and the smells. And yeah, yeah, it's a good thing the cows weren't around. And <laughs> um, you, you have this interesting thing on your website where you're talking about hospitality, and um, it's not really weird. It's it, it's 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 great that you're talking about it, but it's the year of COVID, 2020. Uh, you were closed to the public. You were doing curbside pickup, um, but the tap room was closed. And in, in looking through the website in advance of talking with you, I was really starting to get the sense that you spent those months and weeks that you were closed really thinking about what you wanted to do when you reopened. It, is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment for sure. Um, and it was also a lot of time spent thinking about what we didn't want to do. Um, yeah. you know, the, the circumstances of, of reopening, uh, prematurely, um, and, and what that meant for our, our crew and, um, and for our, our customers was, was something that was there for us. And we kind of wrestled with, um, for, for at least a year. Um, so yeah, we closed our doors, um, you know, whatever that was, you know, the third week in March or so of 2020 and, um, I'd have to reference back when the state started kind of opening things up a little bit for, for on-premise, but it was with, you know, some pretty, pretty tough restrictions and um, you know, the vibe that, that would be kind of created around here to, to jump through those hoops um, and, and the demands that we put on our staff was something that, that we had a hard time kind of juggling. And we really just wrote it out until um you know, the week after May 16th, when the state fully reopened with, with no on-premise restrictions. Um, as far as, you know, what we did want to achieve, yeah. uh, you know, the curbside experience was, was very enlightening for us. Um, you know, going into uh, 2020, we never could have imagined kind of being this e-commerce business. Uh, and, and now to this day, um, at least 80% of our, our sales are done in advance of someone even arriving at the brewery. Um, That's and that, that, 80%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it, up until May, you know, you're looking at like 90 to 95% people were showing up with their order orders already placed um, us being prepared to pick and pack them at a moment's notice and get them on their way in the most convenient, safe way possible. Um, and, and that, that model 
and um, and the convenience of it has really stuck. And and we couldn't picture you know our our off premise you know retail business being done differently. Um, and kind of opening our eyes and and forcing us to be flexible and and consider options that that previously were off the table was. Um, was something that came out of that experience. And so when we reopened for on-premise, um, we went to a reservation-based model. Uh, walk-ins are still welcome at the brewery, but uh, we're taking reservations up to two weeks in advance, um, even though we don't have an on-site food option. And you know, it's yeah. a whole other story there altogether, but that was <laughs> you know, one of the limiting factors for why we, we didn't reopen our door sooner. But um, you know, despite that, uh, we want to give people the option to know exactly what they're walking into when they, when they come to visit us, whether it's, you know, driving 10 minutes down the road or, or making, you know, two hour journey or passing through on their, you know, beach vacation or something. They know if they show up at, at Fox Farm Brewery, um, if they plan accordingly, they, they are going to have the table that they request, whether it's indoors, outdoors, standing room, you name it. Um, it allows us to plan in advance and, perhaps most importantly, allows us to kind of manage the vibe here. Um, you know, it's, we're in a, a rural residential area and being good neighbors has, has always been one of our, our chief concerns. So it allows us for the first time in our history to kind of draw a line in the sand where um, we can, we can say, you know what, today's just a little too busy to take more people on. And we've, we've never had that in the past. I mean, it seems counterintuitive, though, for for what I think you know people think of when it comes to a brewery, or you know, there, there's often a level of spontaneity that exists of like, hey, let's go to the brewery, and um, you know, but also you know, brewery owners or, or you know, hospitality owners, um, you know, wanting to have robust business and you know, not limit people. Um, it sounds like that was sort of like a mental shift for you of you know, having a chance to have a breather in this last year and then, you know, saying, okay, it's okay. We're at capacity now and we're, we're, we're cool with that. Is that yeah, fair? That, absolutely. And and your first point about, you know, the spontaneity element yeah. of it and, and how often, you know, folks are, are perhaps passing through or, or they had already planned their curbside pickup, but maybe they want to stop in for a beer um, when they see that reservation-based model, there's definitely a barrier there mentally. And that's that's probably been the hardest thing for us to um, accept as we move forward with this plan. Um, but the challenge is, is on us and our communication and the experience that we offer folks um, to, to hopefully bring them around that, hey, those spontaneous visits are, are welcome. Um, it's just on a Saturday afternoon, midsummer, you know, between two and five, we might have a hard time accommodating you. And, and you know what, that might not be the best time for that spontaneous visit. Maybe, you know, try and plan around Thursday, Friday, Sunday, earlier in the day. It, it starts to signal to people when it's, um, when it's going to be a more comfortable vibe around here. Um, and um, just the terminology, the vocabulary around reservation-based thing, it's that, that, that's a hard thing to get past. But I think the, the only thing we can do is, is provide an exceptional experience and hopefully um, in time, you know, when people over and that, hey, you know, you're, you're still welcome to show up by yourself. It's just be prepared to, to walk into something maybe a little different than what you expected 
there is a I, I love sort of hearing it that way. And it, it strikes me that that it, it's something that can that can cut both ways of offering a good experience for the customer, um, knowing what they're going to get, you know, ha- giving them almost something, you know, the spontaneity aside, you know, giving them something to look forward to. Like, oh, cool. We have reservations this weekend. And knowing that it's at a capacity that makes, you know, your staff feel comfortable um, which would probably deliver a better customer experience. But the flip side of that is it, it's got to be great for your staff as well of, you know, not being slammed and having, you know, a, a you know, busload of a hundred people show up or something unexpectedly. That, that's, that's absolutely it. Um, you know, there was definitely some division here, you know, as we were turning the idea over and, and I was among those that, that wasn't necessarily in the reservation camp right away. Um, but I, I think that, um, that clarity of exactly what you're going to have going on that day, or at least a reasonable degree, reasonable degree of certainty of what that day is going to look like is, is really, really helpful. Um, and in general, it's, you know, we, we hope, and so far the early indicators are it's, um, as much as it is or could potentially be a deterrent, um, keeping folks away, um, and certainly the situation of like a 20 person bus showing up at a peak time, yeah, you know, would be an example of that. We literally, you know, might have to turn those folks away. Um, it, it's, it helps to kind of spread our, our business around. If, if people just, just by browsing, you know, the reservation system see that, you know, things are a little, little busy on that Saturday afternoon, they might be more inclined to come, come see us on Sunday and Thursday and kind of smooth out the shoulders of the weekend a little bit. And, you know, in the long run from a, from a purely economic standpoint, um, it, it might not be so bad in that regard. Is this something, so you said you sort of wrestled with it when you were thinking about, um, getting, getting reopened. And it sounds like you also, um, were giving this a lot of forethought because, you know, I, I know some people were caught by surprise where it's, oh my gosh, the state is open. Let's, let's do something. It sounds like these are conversations that you were having for weeks, if not longer, um, while you were closed and just doing, doing, doing curbside, but it could this potentially be, um, a long-term model or are you evaluating it month by month or I, I hesitate to ask anybody like, what does the future hold? Cause you know, at the end of 2019, everybody would have gotten it wrong. Um, but how, how are you approaching this right now? Is this um, good for now? Yeah. Yeah. Like I, like I kind of um, alluded to in a different yeah. context, the, the flexibility is, is something we've, we've had to uh, had to learn over the past year and a half. And um, I, the best I can say is it's, it's working really now, right. Or really well right now. Um, I think, you know, come January, February, that conversation, you know, might look a little differently, but hopefully it's, it's something, um, that we can stick to, um, and, and, and implement year round, just by matter of fact, you know, the, the changes season to season, um, aren't usually the, the easiest to implement both internally and, you know, from a communication standpoint, yeah. um, especially, you know, being a rural brewery like ourselves, we do see, you know, kind of this seasonal variability, but um, yeah, for now, for now, we're happy with it. 
when you mentioned earlier, you know, things that are, you know, things that you wanted to do and then things that you didn't want to do. Um, I, I, is there anything else that sort of falls into the things that you didn't want to do um, post pandemic that you might have done beforehand? Things sure. that got, you know, cut by the wayside? Yeah. So um, the on premise food requirement here in the state, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks had, had uh, an unfavorable view of that. And it certainly affected us. And, you know, while I think, you know, it's possible there could have been a, a more, uh, daft touch to things, um, you know, it was a relatively kind of blunt instrument for, for achieving a certain ends. I, I totally understand it. It was, you know, our, our regulators and, and decision makers had, had some tough things to try and wrestle with and, um, broad sweeping changes were, were kind of necessary, but, um, for us, we're, we're not allowed to serve food on premises. It was kind of part of one of these give and take pieces of the conversation as we were um, you know, presenting this rather lofty ask of starting a brewery um, in this, you know, sleepy, um, formerly rural, but, but mostly residential for all intents and purposes town. Um, you know, there was a perception maybe, you know, every weekend would be a carnival, so to speak with, you know. Yeah. Um, so the, the town actually was, um, you know, inclined to, to say, you know, what, no, no food on site might, might, um, make things, you know, present a little bit better to, to neighbors. And we were totally open with that. You know, we were never looking for our on-premise um, activity and, and from a pure, you know, traffic standpoint to be our, our primary, you know, revenue center. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, that wasn't the goal. Um, the goal was to, to welcome people into our space, give them a chance to experience it, um, interface with them, you know, directly and, you know, share our story in the, in the most personal way possible, but have that translate into, into, you know, beer being sold in other ways as, as, you know, the primary, um, primary center of our volume. Um, so I guess kind of a roundabout way of saying we, we didn't want to, <laughs> we didn't want to, um, have to go back to the town and revisit elements of our, our special zoning permit. Um, we didn't want to try and, you know, skirt rules, do things temporarily on a whim, you know, and for good reason, you know, those breweries that do rely on a thriving tap room with, with pours, um, flowing, um, you know, by any means necessary, you yeah. know, they were, they were doing what they had to do. And if that meant, you know, microwaving some pretzels and some roller hot dogs, lunchables, I heard, you know, whatever it takes, you know, some some folks had to do that and, and, and yeah. we totally understand, but we didn't want to have to put ourselves in, in a position to, um, you know, present our beer maybe in, in the way that we, we didn't necessarily intend. And then of course, you know, put our staff, um, in any situation where they were, they were seriously uncomfortable. Um, so for us, just, just taking our time made the most sense. When, when you mentioned the roller hot dogs, my mind flashed to, and I can't remember who this is, so I hope some of the listeners can, but there was a bar or brewery, uh, I think it was a brewery, where the requirement was they had to serve food. Um, the, the town said, like, you know, like if, if you want to open up, you have to serve food. And this person, whoever it was, didn't want to have uh, the responsibility of a menu. They just wanted to make beer. And so they put, I think, hot, hot pockets on the menu. Um, and they had a toaster oven, but they charged something like $50 a hot pocket 
so that they never had to open the box or, or put it out because nobody would, would, would spend it. So that's, that's sort of the opposite of where you were living. And I can't remember who it was and hopefully it'll come to me, but um, that's just a weird aside. Um, yeah. In our case, we would have had to, it, it, I mean, everyone understands this, knows this, but actually force someone to have that hot pocket, right? You couldn't, you couldn't have a beer without uh, a, a, I guess the terminology was a meaningful um, meal in front of you at that time. Um, at first it was very lax and mm -hmm. depending on your health district might've remained lax, but, um, in the eyes of the state, you know, you had to be consuming your alcohol with a meal. And, and that was a hard thing to, to take on for us. And as you think about, you know, let, let's move sort of beyond the four walls and being reopened and, and, and the thoughts behind that as, as, as a brewer, and as somebody who, you know, I've been lucky enough to drink your beers in the past and, and have really been sort of um, tickled by the, uh, the, the, the nuance and, and sort of the great care that you put into your recipes, were, were you able to find brewers creativity, artistic creativity over the last year or so? Yeah, it's it definitely like everyone else required us to um, look inward or, or focus our efforts in, um, in different directions. Um, for us, this year marked a, a really um, a really big development in our uh, spontaneous brewing program, um, mm -hmm. of which we pretty much uh, yet, yet to share with the world. We did one beer. Uh, last year, that was about 40% spontaneous beers, our first first blend uh, to encompass kind of a meaningful amount of, of pure spontaneous beer. But um, internally, um, you know, it was our most productive year uh, as far as actually brewing, um, blending and, and bottling those those projects. So we'll, I don't know if we've ever shared that publicly, but, you know, sometime in the not, not so distant future, we'll have um, beer to share that's 100% spontaneous out of that program so um, yeah talk about talk about a great category um, for us to kind of just look inward and 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 really um, drill down on one particular thing but to your point you know so much of our um, brewing inspiration comes from you know outside experiences and, and travel international travel specifically so yeah. missing out on that is uh has, has been kind of tough we were actually in may of last year we were trying to trying to go to dusseldorf on way to visit family in norway and uh had to nix that trip um and ended up putting out our first first alt beer anyway despite the uh the lack of i, I was gonna know, say i feel like experience. i drank i drank an alt from you this year yeah yeah, yeah, I think it was probably around May of last year we we put our Kolsch out for the first time, um, mm -hmm. and then a few months later, um, actually kind of doubled down. We were so happy with how uh, that beer went and how the yeast performed that we uh, worked uh, an all beer into the kind of yeast cadence when it comes to making the most out of that. When when you think about making a style like an alt and having Dusseldorf plans on your calendar that you have to, to that you have to scrap. Um, would you, do you think you would have felt better had you been on that trip um, in making that beer or 
I mean, I, I imagine you have a level of confidence in your own abilities, which you should, but is, is there something in your brewer mind where you like to have been to a place before you make a style or you like to experience? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know, uh, you know, we had kind of chatted beforehand about, you know, getting into to smoke lagers and, yeah. you know, what a, a trip to Bomberg means for kind of painting your view of, of smoke beers. Um, you know, that was very eye opening and it'd be, you know, kind of tough to imagine really dedicating um, oneself or, you know, a brewery to, to making those beers without really experiencing them, you know, from that place. But that said, um, you know, for myself and, and so many, um, you know, current brewers and, and pioneers for that matter, um, you know, they, they, you know, I've had to had to rely on on brewing certain beers without that that on the ground experience and trying to glean what they can from from books and you know other potential sources of information. Um, yeah. And, and I know personally, you know, in like my my home brewing days, you know, I was absolutely obsessed with with traditional international styles and, and trying to get them right. And that didn't always come from from real experience, right? A lot of the beers. You might be able to pick off the shelves, especially going back, you know, 12 years ago, yeah. um, weren't exactly the best example of that style. Um, but trying to, trying to translate what you could into a, into a good beer is, is, you know, one of the, the classic, you know, challenges that inspire American brewers. Do, do you have any memory or experience of, in your home brewing days, and I love that you were into the classic styles at that point, but you're right. There was a lot of people who were putting beers out on shelves that where they would call it an alt or they'd call it something else. And it really kind of wasn't, um, at least not in the traditional sense, but it was an American interpretation of it. When you finally did start to, to travel and get to taste beers from the source or, you know, as historical breweries intended, was there a shift in your brewer's mind of well, should I've been doing it all wrong or now I finally get it? Was, was there anything like that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I can't, I can't say I have a great example at the moment. I was, I was very fortunate, like at a young age to, um, to, to travel to, to England and spend a year there in college. And, and that was kind of like a first love was, was, you know, English pub beer. Um, so getting into home brewing, I had that kind of on the ground experience to, to draw from, but, you know, on a, on a more practical level, you know, going to the store and picking up, you know, London pride and, and trying to calibrate, you know, as you're, you're working on your home brew, that's not the best, best example of the beer to, to try and, you know, hit the mark on, uh, the best example would be, you know, at the pub you know, serve fresh, pulled through, through a hand pump. But, um, um, I, I'm, I'm sure by the time I make it to Dusseldorf, I might have a good example for you. We're proud of our alt beer, but, um, there's a lot to be said for, for, you know, experiencing it in the place, you know, surrounded by the culture. It might even be from a service perspective. Um, same thing. I, I personally have not been to Czech Republic. So, um, look forward to that experience someday as well. And, um, it's it'd be kind of kind of foolish and naive to say you know travel like that wouldn't open your eyes if not 
know, how a beer should be brewed, but how it should be presented. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about smoked beers because I know that's why so many people are listening right now. That's that's our largest audience right now is uh, the smoked beer uh, aficionados and fans. Um, but I want to get back to the spontaneous program because I, you've been open for how many years now? Uh, four and a few months. Okay. I mean, there are breweries that are open for four months that have put out, you know, quote unquote, spontaneous beer. Um, and maybe they're not blends or maybe they're not, um, but they're doing cool ship. They're trying to do all, all, all sorts of different things. Um, the fact that you've taken a couple of years to, to do this must, must, at least in my mind, mean that you had a pretty specific vision for what you wanted these beers to be when they were ready. Yeah, I think, Is that fair? um, absolutely. Yeah. To, to have, uh, um, something in bottles now ready to sh- to share in you know a few months or you know definitely by the end of the year is is kind of the best case scenario we could have imagined when we we set out on that path and it was it was one we knew was going to require a a ton of patience and um uh, you know for so many reasons i mean the the feedback loop on your your spontaneous beer it's unlike anything else in brewing right it could could be two years before you know um that that one batch might be viable in a blend. Um, so some, one can imagine, you know, how, how long um, that takes to, to iterate and improve and, and we'll, we'll never stop, you know, iterating and improving year to year, but, you know, to, to be kind of on the doorstep of having something ready is, is means a lot to us. Yeah. Was there something in your mind's palette that you were hoping for, looking for, striving for? Uh, domestically there, there's so many breweries, um, that are doing it well, that we admire, um, you know, here in the Northeast to have Allagash, you know, not too far away and, um, to, to see what they've been doing since they started is, has been a great source of inspiration. But, um, I, I think we've, we've always kind of looked at, looked at Lambic producers as, as being, you know, the holy grail that that'll never be attainable but you know if we kind of use that as our our north star so to speak um yeah. we'll find our own our own voice and that's that's one thing that you know we're so excited about is you know we're we're, we're finding a house character and it's yeah there's some little little flourishes of um you know those those entailed intangibles you find in in lambic but um there's there's stuff there that we've you know, never tasted anywhere else. And it's just, um, it, it's, it's kind of giving us our own voice in the realm of spontaneous beer. And I think that that's, um, probably the most important thing is, is being open to, to developing your own, your own character. Um, if you just keep chasing Lambic, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll probably never get there, but, um, hopefully you can bring something else to the world that's unique and enjoyable. Nonetheless. I know we didn't talk about uh, that. We were going to talk about this in advance and you kind of took me by surprise uh, with this as well. So um, if you don't want to go too deep into it, I'm, 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 I'm totally understand, but um, can you give us a little sneak peek at what you, you feel like this house character is showing? Uh, Yeah, it's um, so that, 
know, pencil eraser, like rubber tire. Um, you know, that's, what's like just so, so pungent and, and lambic and, you know, we got like a little whiff of that going on, but you know, it's, it's a, we have a really pleasant phenolic character. Um, I liken it to like, you know, straight from the can pineapple juice. Um, really? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's my own interpretation anyway. Dan. Okay. Then often Dan, it has like a little bit of like a fermented character to it in my mind. Yeah. And it's, it's really nice. And so we. Like you know, spicy. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got, um, you know, some, some less complex blends as well as, you know, multi-year blends that we're, we're preparing for folks and you'll see that kind of present in different ways, but it's, it's a common thread that I find running through it. And I have to give a lot of credit to, to Dan, our brewer here. He came to us um, pretty much with the, the, the primary focus of leading the charge on our spontaneous program. Um, been with us about 18 months now. And um, while well, he's brewing lager today and, and wearing many hats, like we all do, um, you know, there's, uh, there's much going on there that, that we can, we can thank Dan for. So we're sometime in July right now, I guess. Yeah. Beginning of July. Uh, so sometime before the end of the year, you think maybe perhaps for chance. That's the hope. Yep. We don't, there's, you can't we rush it. I'm not, I'm not asking for a specific date because you know, yep. your, your reservation system will crash, but. No, no, I, I hardly doubt it. Just like the, the smoke beer uh, category, which we could get into, but um, just having, you know, something that enough people perk up at. Um, and yeah, we, we, we certainly don't want to rush the conditioning on, on something as, as new and unwieldy as spontaneous beer for us. More with Zach in just a moment, but first a short word from the folks who help us keep the lights on over here. Brees is proud to control their malt, starting in the field until it arrives at your brewery. They have a long-term relationship with several hundred growers in the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming and Montana, where warm days, cool nights, and floodwater irrigation yield some of the highest quality barley in the United States. We're also brought to you by Lawson's Finest Liquids, which is guided by five pillars, excellence, authenticity, fun, community, and innovation. These values are represented in their product quality, work culture, guest experience, and charitable giving. The SIP, their social impact program, is the Lawson's finest way of building impactful connections and strengthening their communities while creating memorable experiences. Learn more at lawsonsfinest.com. And also check out NZ Hops. At NZ Hops, they feel that sustainability is not only being a steward for the land, but also for our planet's future. We're in it together. Join the conversation at nzhops.co.nz or join them on LinkedIn, Instagram, or on Twitter. And now back to Zach Adams of Fox Farm in Connecticut. And let's talk about some Rauk beers. All right. You've made enough subtle hints at this point. I, so I brought you here under the guise of wanting to talk about smoked beer. And then I started talking about hospitality and travel and spontaneous. So thanks for indulging me on, on, on all of that. But um on the This Week in Rauk Beer page, uh, starting about last week, uh, an Instagram post uh, from your brewery started popping up over and over again. And people were saying, oh my gosh, uh, Fox Farms is making a, a Graditsky. And people were getting very excited by it and uh, plotting their, their Google map trips to Connecticut and uh, wanting to get some Polish champagne. And so that's that's why I called you up over the weekend and or, or emailed you over the weekend and said, you know, hey, can you come on and uh, talk to me about 
this particular beer. And so let's let let let's dive into it. You 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 have released a Graditsky and it sounds delicious and much in the same way that you were saying, you know, you want to go to uh, the source and, you know, learn from you know, folks who have done it and all that. You, you actually called Live Oak down in Texas to get some insight into this particular beer. So um, your brewery is no stranger to, to Rauk beers to begin with, but talk to me about the journey that led from you know, the idea of this to the release of this. Yeah, I think first of all, as you hinted at, we saw a massive sales opportunity to hit the uh, untapped Grodzicki market. Um, is there I'm a badge? Is there, is there, is there, yeah. <laughs> there, there should be. And uh, hopefully those people are on their way because we haven't quite seen them yet, but we were, we were really pleasantly surprised by the initial response. You know, as, as those of us that know, you know, smoked smoked loggers are one of the toughest cells in the business, but they, they really shouldn't be. And that's why uh, a lot of us are out there beating the drum. Um, but yeah, we, um, we, we wanted to, to jump in with both feet. Um, and uh, frankly, Live Oaks Grodzitski is, is makes up the lion's share of our exposure to the style. We've only had a few and um haven't been so fortunate to have you know any home brewed or, or um, commercially brewed as there is now available um, you know Polish Grodziski. So uh, we had to kind of kind of draw from those couple examples we had, and and really ninety percent of that was was live oaks. So um, <laughs> in, in the most you know, I feel like if earnest, you called I like when you say it like that, I feel like if you called Live Oaks main switchboard, you know, it would be, you know, for Graditsky advice, press one for our <laughs> tap room, press two, like you're making it seem like they are. And I think they, they, they probably, I know dovetails making one as well, but like, there's really not a lot of resources out there for this particular style. Yeah, that's it. I mean, there, there's, there's information, um, you know, out there and, you know, Stan, uh, has been, you know, great source and you can kind of uncover, articles and, and little, you know, nuggets of info out there if you know where to look. But as far as, you know, turning to a peer and, um, you know, asking for advice, there's, there's no one else like Live Oak um, as far as, you know, the experience with the style, um, both through their travel and years of, of brewing it. Um, so in the most earnest, genuine way, we, we, we hit up Live Oak just, because we had been spinning our wheels for you know a couple of years on on, on brewing it, and um, frankly weren't comfortable without uh, um, without drawing you know some additional experience from from at least conversing about it. So we we really just wanted to to go at it in the best possible way and not screw it up. Um, and that's that's how we got in touch with with Dusan and the folks at Live Oak. Do, do, do they basically teach a master class in this? As far as like a, a collaboration goes, um, I, I say it's there's actually more of a mentorship than a collaboration. Um, but as far as the, you know the exchange of information as one way as it might have been, um, you know it was the most robust conversation around brewing a beer with another brewery we've ever had. And not that we have a ton of experience; it's one of just a handful we've we've done here anyway. Um, but but pretty much, yeah, you, you could go through our 
through our emails and and have a pretty good roadmap for for brewing your grows. So when you did this, um, you also used a local maltster. Yeah, and, so that's yeah, that's that's where the rubber kind of meets the road, and you know, like we were talking about before on the other topic, you know, finding your own your own voice. Um, you know, Live Oak has their um, source overseas of of their oak smoked wheat. Um, and, you know, fortunately, Wireman uh, has theirs as a, um, a more, you know, widely available option for folks that want to brew the style. But um, we had been kind of turning over the conversation with Spencer Thrall at Thrall Family Malt uh, here in Windsor, Connecticut. He's um, first malt house, um, at least post-prohibition, that we've uh, been able to have here in Connecticut. Um, he's coming at it actually from the perspective of this I wish I could say what generation farmer his family's been farming continuously since 1642. Um, it's a benefit of being in Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, for, for those kind of aware of the area, if you've ever flown into Bradley airport outside of Hartford, you know, you fly over these tobacco sheds and his family, at least for the past few generations, um, you know, shade tobacco and broadleaf leaf tobacco have been their, their primary um, revenue generators, but uh, with tobacco kind of on the wane in a very big way, they've lost hundreds of acres. But um, Ralk beer on the rise. Yeah, no, this <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's what we hope, both Spencer and myself. But uh, this is actually Spencer's first first smoke. He's been um, thinking about it for a while, as as have we. Um, but, you know, he's gotten his malting operation off the ground over the past three, four years and has his process really dialed in. And um, we just hope some other brewers will call him up and, and ask for some custom smoked um, barley or other grains. But in this case, you know, he, he's such a savvy guy. Um, he had the, the, the source in the lumber industry to, to get almost any wood varieties we wanted to use and the, the know-how, um, you know, Yankee. Yankee farmer, um, you know, to, to put together a smoking setup and so, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, um, something we just can't wait to brew this beer again already. It's, you know, as much as brewing, people like to talk about art and science when it comes to smoking malt. I mean, it's at least at the scale we're talking about, it, it just feels like all art. I mean, you could look at the setup that he put together and, instantly think of 20 variables with like a qualitative outcome and a qualitative output from those variables that you can't necessarily, you know, measure how each one changes the final product, but you could easily change, um, you know, whether it's, you know, the wood variety, how seasoned it is, the you know, combustion source, how far the smoke travels, how deep the grain bed, you know, depth is, um, there, there's just so many things at play and, um, you know, the best we could do was, was put together, um, or I should say, you know, in his case, put together a, a, a smoking apparatus where, you know, he felt really comfortable about it, but then, you know, in our case to show up on the, on the day of the smoke and, you know, taste the malt over the course of several hours and try and draw a line at, you know, where we, where we hit the mark. Um, yeah. So, so when you were putting together, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's one thing when you're working with a local maltster, but then, you know, having a wood guy uh, or, you know, a lumber source where you can actually then start to pick 
what you're going to burn to create the smoke for this malt. Um, how far back did that conversation go or how deep did that conversation go to, to come up with your final blend? Uh, we honed in on like, we, we definitely wanted oak to be the, uh, the primary um, wood variety being used. Uh, whether that was red oak or white oak, we kind of wrestled with, we ended up going with red oak for this first batch. Um, and then, you know, just trying to, trying to create something that was a little bit our own and, and perhaps reflective of, you know, the Northeast, um, you know, what other, other variety we could pair with that. And, you know, ended up settling on maple in the hopes of getting this kind of, kind of smooth, nutty um, quality coming through. And, with route beer that doesn't always, you know, translate and can be hard to find, you know, through, uh, through things, but, um, at least, uh, keeps us engaged and feeling creative. Do, do, do you feel like, I mean, it's one thing with hops and even with, with traditional malts where well-trained palates or even not so well-trained can, can pick out, you know, specific ingredients. Do, do you think, people will be able to pick out maple or oak or, you know, red oak. Like, is that, are, are there, I, I guess that's, a, that's the wrong way to ask it. When people are tasting this beer, are there defining flavors or characteristics that you think represent those woods so that if somebody's drinking it, um, they can be hunting for it on their palate? Uh, I hope that that will come with time. I mean, oak, oak smoke is a very distinctive flavor as it's beach. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of easy to find. I think for us, you know, um, in, in full transparency, we've, we've never um, had a maple smoke malt of any sort. Um, so to, to kind of kind of reference, um, you know, what that's lending to the beer. Um, I can only hope that comes with, with, decades of brewing the style and, and being able to change up the wood varieties and, and, and learn from that experience. And as you know, you know, smoke is such a, a crazy chameleon of a flavor in beer. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, you know, 10 or 12 cans I've cracked over the past week, trying to wrap my head around this, this beer, you know, each one presents differently depending on, on where your palate's at and what your surroundings are like. And um, I guess I have to kind of, kind of take the humble route and say, you know, I don't know for now, but hopefully in time I'll be able to, to hone in on that. And that's the fun of it is, is, you know, doing things for the long haul and, and, and just trying to iterate over, over a very, very long trajectory as live hope has. I mean, and, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I kind of share like, like us, you know, each, each batch of new beer and especially a smoke beer, um, you just can't wait to brew it again. And this is kind of a shared experience of ours. And, um, you know, with, with something as niche as, as smoke lagers, um, that might take, you know, six months of waiting or a year of waiting before you can brew that beer again. But the hope is, you know, you get that opportunity to iterate and, um, there's enough of an interest to get through that, that second, third, you know, hundredth batch. Is <laughs> You mentioned early on that, you know, it, it should be more popular than it is, um, the, 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 the whole category. Um, 
And, you know, obviously like this, this group that we have going on Facebook, the This Week in Ralph Beer group, like it's, I mean, it, it's fun and people are enthusiasts and all of that, but like th these are polarizing beers um, or they can be as you're making them and you're saying, you know, they should be more popular than they are um, or better received than they are. Um, how do you have that conversation with people who, I don't know, might take offense at you know, smoky ham water? <laughs> I think you could start by not, not calling it smoky <laughs> ham water. Hot dog water, smoke right, bottle, anything. Right. But so I'm part of the problem. I got it. That, that's <laughs> nothing new. Um, it's, it's a lot like, you know, we, we've, we've kind of got a little um, background experience where you know, it took us a, a good year or two before we put our first smoked lager out there, but um, we were coming at it, you know, from day one, having had these mixed fermentation farmhouse beers that, you know, can be, um, you know, a little tart up front and introducing folks. We're, we're here in Southeastern Connecticut, a lot of, you know, uh, neighborly friendly traffic. We might be their first exposure to, you know, quote unquote, sour beer. Um, and learning how to kind of frame that conversation and inform people and just kind of just grinding it out, um, introducing people to, to new unexpected flavors in beer um, is, is part of the challenge there. And we saw that program kind of grow in this very organic way. It wasn't just, you know, beer, beer geeks driving an hour and a half, two hours away to pick up our mixed firm bottles. We were, we were winning people over, um, right there being perhaps their first exposure um, to those flavors. So I, I think, you know, there's that adage, you know, you got to have three sips or whatever to get over the hump of, of those, um, you know, for lack of a better term, shocking flavors in beer, but uh, like, like, you know, acidity uh, smoke has been around for, for, generations and generations and it's got that staying power for a reason um and you know traveling to bomberg there, there's no other way to really kind of win someone over to to smoke lager than to experience it from the source there and then sit down you know at, at spezial or shikala and um kind of just take it all in the foods the smells the people you know you'll have you know, 18, 20 something year olds, you know, drinking their, their 500 mil glasses of, of route yeah. beer in the streets one after another. And, um, I, I don't think that's, um, you know, just native to their palates. I think it's, it's something anyone could learn to appreciate if, uh, if kind of pushed on them enough. Well, uh, if you're not already a member, uh, I, I will invite you, Zach, to, to join us on the This Week in Rack Beer Facebook group where uh, uh, you can find like-minded individuals who, who care deeply about Rauk Beer. Um, and, and I will point out that this 3.2% Graditsky that you've put out uh, recently, uh, you're calling it a delightful peak summer refresher worthy of year-round enjoyment, which just makes my heart happy. To, to see you describe it that way. So I hope, uh, I hope we could see this year round. I hope you get to make this again and, you know, get to, to mess around with malts and different woods and to, to kind of go from there. And um, when you do, I hope you'll come back on the show and tell us all about it. Anytime, John. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. So here's what happened after I stopped recording. Zach mentioned just how powerful smoked beer can be. 
on a Monday to Monday timeline. So like when he announced that the Graditsky was coming out and online sales were offered the same day, the brewery also released an IPA. And during that seven day period, Zach tells me the Rauk outsold the hops three to one. So keep up the good work, everybody. What are you drinking to stay refreshed this summer? Drop me a line. It's John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com. Or tell me on Twitter, John underscore Hall. A reminder to check out beeredge.com to subscribe to the newsletter to catch up on episodes of this podcast as well as the Beer Edge podcast and to check out our very cool merch page. If you want to learn more about helping us out, you can reach out to Liz Melby. She's on email at liz at beeredge.com and she's happy to talk about advertising. This episode is sponsored by Brees. Brees is the leading supplier of specialty malt to craft brewers. They offer the broadest product line in the industry, including a wide range of roasted malts that add flavor, color, and character to beer. Their experienced operators handcraft every batch of roasted malt to ensure the product you get is consistent. Check out brewingwithbrees.com for beer recipes using roasted malt. We're also brought to you by NZ Hops, the cooperative of master growers, which is a passionate collective of farms dedicated to innovation and sustainability. Leading the charge in sustainable farm practices, some NZ Hop farms have over five generations of knowledge that inform their composting program used by brewers to promote healthy, regenerative growth of hops year after year. This creates high quality soil, a critical component of healthy growing conditions. At NZ Hops, they feel that sustainability is not only being a steward for the land, but for our planet's future. We're in it together. Join the conversation at nzhops.co.nz or on LinkedIn, Instagram, or on Twitter. As promised, Sean Lawson is back with me. He's the founder of Lawson's Finest Liquids in Vermont, which is a sponsor of this episode, and I'm very thankful for that. And Sean, we're talking about the brewery's SIP, the Social Impact Program, and People often think of breweries as just beer manufacturers. So why is this program important to you, and why did you want to give back? From the beginning, when my wife Karen and I founded Lawson's Finest back in 2008, uh, charitable giving has always been an important part of our values, and we've really built our business as socially responsible and values-driven. And so uh, over the years, as we've developed as a company, We've had the good fortune of success through selling our beer, and it's important to us to to give back and to share that success both with the employees that work here through one of our SIP6 programs, the Great Place to Work, uh, that includes all of our great benefits and uh, living wages for our service employees uh, rather than tips, our Sunshine Fund where we give guest donations out to nonprofits uh, throughout Vermont, our Super Session Series, uh, which is built to uh, fund mini-grants uh, for community events. Our Good Brews for a Cause, where we have collaborations with other organizations and breweries to raise funds for uh, a meaningful charitable cause. Our Green is Grand, where we're investing in solar energy uh, and other sustainability measures like efficiency uh, and the, the, the best equipment that we can uh obtain for our brewery and our facilities. And then finally, our SIP of support, which is where we give back through uh, donations of merchandise, uh, sponsorships, uh, and other programs that support uh, nonprofit organizations throughout the Northeast here. And it's our way of uh, sharing our success with the communities uh, that sustain us as a business. 
So it's not just the the beer that makes you feel good as a consumer, but knowing that uh, your dollars are helping out some really great causes uh, every time you have a Lawson's beer. Um, thanks, Sean. Thanks for doing this. And I'll remind everybody and invite them to check out Lawson'sFinest.com or the brewery social media channels to learn more about the brewery. Don't forget, steal this beer every Monday and the BYO Nano podcast on the 15th of every month. Nate Weber does the music. Jeff Quinn designed the logo. I'm John Hall. New episodes of this show release every Wednesday. And that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>